Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Rounders, a history of baseball in America. I'm Jeff Lambert, your host. I want to thank you for tuning in to today's episode. We have an exciting topic to cover today. We're going to be talking about the great owner and promoter extraordinaire, Bill Veck, a gentleman that I'd heard the name of, but I had never realized the impact that he had on baseball, not only just from the aspect of owning several teams, but also just from changing the game how it was advertised, how it was promoted, the types of marketing schemes that were done to get fans to the park. And not only that, the actual changes made to the rules in baseball. A lot of these can be traced back to Bill Veck. So I'm really excited to discuss him today. Uh, I had a lot of fun researching his career and learning more about him, and I hope you'll have fun as well. So let's get right to it. I'm doing a little bit of a different format for today's episode. I'm going to divide... Uh, Bill's life into four different chapters, and I'll segment those out and put them in the show notes so you can go forward or back, depending on if there's a certain part of his life that you'd like to hear about specifically. So if you have any feedback on that, please drop me a comment on social media or send me an email and uh, let me know if you like this new format. All right, let's get right to it. Chapter one, in his father's image. William Lewis Veek Jr. was born on February 9, 1914. His father, William Veek Sr., was a huge baseball fan. He wrote for a local newspaper under the pen name Bill Bailey. He would often write about the Chicago Cubs, and he would constantly criticize then-Cubs owner William Wrigley for the team's poor performance. One day, Wrigley got so annoyed with the constant criticism from Veek Sr., that he responded to him and dared him to take over the team and do better. And that's exactly what happened. William Veck Sr. became the president of the Chicago Cubs in 1918, and he was successful. He led the Cubs to pennants in 1929, 1932, and 1935. Because his father was constantly at the ballpark, Bill Jr. began hanging around Wrigley Field at around age 10. He went on record as saying once in an interview that, quote, I am the only human being ever raised in a ballpark, end quote. Even at that young age of 10, he began working as a vendor and a ticket seller. But this only lasted a few weeks. See, William Beck Sr. wanted to make sure that his son Bill got the best education. So he sent him to New Mexico to enroll in an experimental curriculum that followed the back-to-nature philosophy of Henry David Thoreau basically hippies. Bill left the school without graduating high school because he didn't feel it was a good fit. So, Bill Jr. 
was looking for a way to be able to continue his education without a high school degree. That led him back home, and he decided to take an entrance exam at Kenyon College in Ohio. He passed that entrance exam, and he ended up enrolling full-time. While he was there, he played sports, and to his own admission, he said he partied the whole time. But he also showed leadership skills, and he became president of his freshman class. During that time, he also got the nickname that stuck with him for life, as he was known as Burhead on campus, mainly because of his wild red hair. Now, he left after his sophomore year at college because his father was diagnosed with leukemia, and he went back to Chicago to help take care of him. As Bill went home and spent time with his father in his final months, it became apparent that his father was no longer able to eat, and in his final weeks he was only able to ingest wine. Now, because this was in the 1920s, prohibition was in full effect. And when Bill was interviewed about this later on in life, he said that he was so determined to be able to get his father that wine so he could keep his strength up that he went around prohibition laws and went to Al Capone himself to get his father alcohol. Despite Bill's best efforts, leukemia did take his father in 1933. Bill was just 19 years old. Bill decided to dedicate his life to baseball because of the influence that his father had on his life. Even from a young age, I'm sure he noticed his father writing these articles about baseball and about the Cubs, and then later on in life seeing his father run an organization, and then even in his later years, being able to share that love of baseball as a way to connect with each other. That must have been truly special. But outside of their love for baseball, Bill ended up becoming the opposite of his father. See, William Beck Sr., he was known as a formal gentleman, a man of the establishment. Bill never wore a necktie, he kept his hair wild, and he was known as the irreverent life of the party his entire career. So in some ways, the father and the son were the same, but they did their business differently. Chapter 2. Promoter Extraordinaire After his father passed away, Bill decided to go back and get a job with the Chicago Cubs for a whopping $18 a week. Bill had tons of ideas that were just overflowing in his head that he wanted to share to improve the team and the stadium, and he didn't waste any time sending those up to the management to consider. During those Cubs games where he served in this role, you could often find him roaming the stadium and gathering suggestions from the fans. You could often find him sitting shirtless in the bleachers, with a cigarette in one hand and a beer in the other. He loved sitting in the bleachers, mostly because he believed, and was quoted many times as saying this, one's knowledge of baseball is in inverse proportion to the price of one's seat. It was where he felt at home. And those were the folks that he catered to as he ended up climbing the baseball ladder. Bill came out strong. He suggested Wrigley Field adopt a wide array of changes. He wanted to see wider seats, more concession stands. He wanted lights to be installed at the park for night games. He even pushed for a new scoreboard above the bleachers that used a system of lights to be able to keep people on the passing trains informed of what was happening in the game. But during this time, 
The team was now owned by William Wrigley's son, and William Wrigley's son was quiet and reserved. He would rather be tinkering with his car than dealing with these types of public relations issues, and he ended up rejecting all of Bill's ideas. His only contribution during his time with the Cubs in this early part of his career was planting the ivy on Wrigley Field's walls. That was the only suggestion that they took. And it was one that the younger Wrigley ended up taking credit for anyways. That didn't get Bill down, though. In 1941, he bought his first baseball club. It was a double-A team known as the Milwaukee Brewers. This team was in last place, and they were the perpetual basement dwellers of this league. Bill didn't waste any time in trying to be able to get people into the stadium and filling the seats. He hired a guy named Charlie Grimm, who was known as Jolly Charlie, as the team manager. Grimm ended up playing first base in some of those games. He was known for playing a banjo in the clubhouse. And he won a pennant with the Cubs in 1935 as a player. So he brought a winning attitude to the team. To fill the seats, Bill began trying out some of those ideas that he had in his head while with the Cubs. The first thing he did was he cleaned and painted Milwaukee's broken-down ballpark. Then he got to getting people in the stands. He scheduled morning games so overnight workers at the war plants could come and watch the games. And on top of that, he served them cornflakes for free and was in the line actually giving the bowls out as they came in the stadium. He held many shows in between innings, and these shows included pig races, boogie-woogie bands, and tightrope walkers. He gave away prizes at almost every game. Some of these included live lobsters, pigeons, chickens, guinea pigs, even a sway-backed horse. One particularly neat promotion that he offered was he did a raffle for a hundred silver dollars, and then when the winner came out to collect it, he gave him a giant block of ice with those hundred silver dollars embedded inside of it. Bill's philosophy was to never announce any of these promotions ahead of time. He wanted fans to come to the games anticipating some sort of surprise. Another tendency that Bill started to undertake as owner was he ended up buying players, even if he didn't have the money to be able to afford them, and then he would sell them when he actually needed the debts that were called in to be paid. But this strategy worked. In his short time with the Brewers, they won the pennant in their, oh, excuse me, they almost won the pennant in their first season under his leadership. And then after that year, they won the next three pennants. So not only was he able to get people into the ballpark, he built a winning team with his strategy. That brings us to 1946. Bill decided that he wanted to make it to the big time, and he was able to put together a group of investors to purchase the Cleveland Indians. Now, during this time, because of some of the promotional stunts that he pulled with the Brewers, he was looked down by the other MLB owners for what they saw as these lowbrow shenanigans from this guy from the minors. As a matter of fact, then New York Yankees owner George Weiss had recently voted to not do a cap giveaway with his fans because he didn't want every kid, quote, in New York walking around with a Yankees cap, end quote. These other owners didn't get it. 
They didn't know how to be able to market baseball to anybody outside of who was already an avid fan. But the problem with baseball as time went on was other sports started to get more popular and started to challenge their supremacy. So Vec was ahead of his time in being able to get people into the ballpark. He stated once that, quote, My tastes, I have found, are so average that anything that appeals strongly to me is probably going to appeal to most of the customers, end quote. He was also quoted saying that his philosophy was, quote, Every day should be a Mardi Gras, and every fan should be a king, end quote. Well, he took both of these philosophies to heart, and he immediately started trying to get people in the stands to watch the Cleveland Indians, who, again, during this time, were not very good. So some of his promotions included, and there's a long list here, and one of the most revolutionary ones that he did was he started to focus a lot of his marketing and promotions on female fans, which hadn't really been done up until this point. One of the first things he did to the Cleveland Indians ballpark was he renovated the ladies' bathrooms. He put down clean carpets, he installed soft lighting, and he installed plush furniture. He even held a contest to name one of the bathrooms in the stadium that he was particularly proud of. The winner of that bathroom, they ended up calling it the Hall of Femme. <laughs> Bill also held promotional giveaways that were focused on female fans. This included doing a nylon stocking giveaway, and that may not seem like a big deal now, but back then, nylon was a hard product to come by because of World War II. So this was particularly attractive as a giveaway for female fans. The other thing that he did on Mother's Day, he would give out orchids to any female fans who came to the park. Bill wanted to establish himself as a man of the people. He removed the door from his office, and he listed his home phone number in the public directory so he could be more approachable to the fans. While owner of the Cleveland Indians, Bill also decided to make a revolutionary step, and he signed the first African-American player in the American League. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. See, these changes not only brought fans into the stadium, but they also produced a winning team on the field. The Indians ended up making the World Series in 1948, and he decided to do something revolutionary even then. He decided for the first time in baseball's history to sell single-game tickets to the World Series. See, at this time, all the home games that were in a series were sold in sets, so a lot of times they were only affordable to the wealthy. This brought the ability to come see a World Series game to your common man. In 1949, when the team was eliminated from the playoffs, he staged a mock funeral at the Indians' ballpark and buried their 1949 team flag. Under his leadership, attendance rose to second in the league. He moved the team stadium to another one that was triple the size of the old one. And, which I should have mentioned before, in 1948, they ended up winning the World Series. So a successful run for him while he was in Cleveland. But it didn't stop there. He wanted a new challenge. So in 1951, he got together another group of investors to buy out a team called the St. Louis Browns. The St. Louis Browns were the forgotten second child of St. Louis. See, the favorite was the St. Louis Cardinals, and the Browns were always playing second fiddle. But Bill went in there with the attitude is, 
and he was quoted as saying he was going to run the Cardinals out of town with his operation. So again, Bill tried some new things to be able to get people to come out to the ballpark. So some of his promotions included right off the bat on opening night, he offered a free beer or a soda to every fan that came to the stands. And during his time as the Browns owner, he pulled off what is probably known as his biggest stunt. Bill decided to bend some of the MLB's rules, and he signed a gentleman named Eddie Guidel. Eddie had no previous experience playing in Major League Baseball, but probably his most distinguishing characteristic was that he was three foot seven and he weighed 65 pounds. Eddie Guidel, to the surprise of everybody that was in the stadium, entered the second half of a doubleheader between the St. Louis Browns and the Detroit Tigers. He came in as a pinch hitter for the leadoff batter for the Browns. Immediately, the umpire called out the Browns manager and said, what the heck is going on? So, to vex uh, foresight, he made sure to give the manager a copy of the contract that Guidel had signed. And when the umpire asked what the heck was going on, the manager simply pulled out the contract and said, this is a legit signing. So, the umpire had no choice. He had to let it go on. Guidel ended up reaching first that day, as the pitcher delivered four straight balls because there was no strike zone to hit. Guidel ended up going to first, and the rest is history. The reaction from this stunt by baseball's other owners, as well as by the MLB's commissioner, was not one of appreciation. Basically, you had other owners, such as Will Harridge, who is the American League president, come out and say Vec was making a mockery of the game. They got together, and with Major League Baseball's support, voided Eddie Guidel's contract the very next day. And Vec didn't take this lying down. In response, he threatened to request an official ruling on whether Yankees shortstop and the reigning American League MVP Phil Rizzuto, who was only five foot six was either a short player or a tall dwarf. But that failure did not get Bill down, as he decided to institute another promotional night that I think was brilliant, and something we would never see today. He called it Grandstand Manager Night. Each fan that came into the park who sat behind the dugout was given two signs, one that said yes and one that said no. Throughout the game, at certain points... The crowd was asked to call the plays. Some of the questions included whether or not the batter should bunt, whether or not the person on first should steal second, or whether the team should initiate a hit and run. To tie this all together, the Browns team manager had the night off, and he was given a rocking chair and a pipe in full view of all the fans. During Vex's two-year stint with the Browns, his fellow owners did not appreciate these promotional stunts. And that would become sort of a pattern throughout Vex's career. He was never truly appreciated during his time for what he was doing. Now, Vex did end up selling the team shortly after he bought them. The team ended up moving to Baltimore. And the main reason for this was even though he was able to double the team's attendance, he just wasn't able to get a winning ball club out of them. And he decided to move on to another club pretty quickly on in the process. Vec took about a five-year hiatus from baseball to focus on his family, but he needed to scratch that itch. 
And in 1959, he put together another group of investors, and he bought the basement-dwelling Chicago White Sox. Again, he wasted no time in making sure that he put his unique stamp on promotional flair with this team. As he did with the Cleveland Indians and the Milwaukee Brewers, the first thing that he did as owner was he paid a lot of money to have the entire ballpark scrubbed and painted. As he did in Cleveland, he did his orchids giveaway for female fans on Mother's Day. But he added some new ones to his tenure during this time. He had a lucky chair giveaway, where the winner was awarded 36 live lobsters. During this time, Bill started a new promotional strategy called A Thousand Raffles. Basically how this worked is that a lucky fan would win something like a thousand cans of beer, a thousand bottles of root beer, or a thousand cupcakes. And Bill did this because, and he was quoted as saying, quote, You give a thousand people a can of beer, and each of them will drink it, smack his lips, and go back to watching the game. But you give a thousand cans to one guy, and there is always an outside possibility that 50,000 people will talk about it, end quote. Bill also decided to expand his marketing team by giving free tickets to cab drivers and bartenders to be able to come watch the games, which I think is brilliant. And he believed that they were valuable public relations boosters for the team. He kept up with the times of what was happening with his team. After one game, their left fielder, Al Smith, ended up getting booed out of the stadium by fans. So the next game, Vec let anybody whose last name was Smith or Smythe or Schmidt come in for free as Al's guests. One of the neater improvements that Bill got actually from watching pinball machines was that he installed an exploding scoreboard in the park, and it would go off during home runs and other big plays. He used the stadium's PA system to be able to pipe noises through the loudspeakers. And there's a quote from the Sporting News that sums up exactly what it was like to sit in the stadium during this time. They said, quote, Fireworks explode beneath the scoreboard, while tape recordings give out virtually every sound imaginable. A cavalry charge, machine gun fire, two trains crashing head-on, subway screechings, jet bombers, and a woman screaming, Firemen, save my child! End quote. You think about the exploding scoreboards and the piping noise in into the stadium. Nobody was doing this during this time. This was a Vec invention, and it's a normalcy in our sport today. There was another lasting innovation that Vec made during this time. He decided to put the players' names on the back of their road uniforms. And a few months later, he added them to the back of the home uniforms as well. He wanted all of the fans to be able to spot their favorite players as soon as they came on the field. That's something that's just we take for granted nowadays. And Vec was the forefather of that strategy. Under his leadership, the White Sox consistently finished in the top three in attendance. And he brought the team back to a World Series for the first time since that Black Sox scandal of 1919. He stayed, excuse me, he stayed owner of the White Sox all the way until 1961, but he had to quit because of health issues. Uh, as I mentioned before, Bill was a pretty hard partier. He was a chain smoker and a heavy drinker. Oftentimes after games, he would fly or take a bus to other parts uh, of different cities where he knew that the nightlife was popular and he would party all the way until the early morning hours and go right back into work. So he, uh, he lived the fast life 
uh, but it ended up catching up to him later on. So he ended up leaving in 1961, and he decided to make one last comeback in 1976. Even though the other major league owners just did not enjoy having him as a part of their club, he was able to get together a group of investors, one last group of investors, and he purchased the White Sox again in 1976. And he continued his flair for having some uh, interesting ways to get fans in the park. For instance, during this year, it was America's bicentennial. So on the date of that game, he, the team manager, and his assistant came out in Revolutionary War uniforms, and they were playing the fife and the drum, and they were waving the American flag. Very patriotic. Some of his notable promotions during this last stint included having belly dancers in the stands. He would hold parades featuring horses and cattle on the field. He even made his players wear Bermuda shorts for a few games. And he decided to put his 53-year-old team manager in his DH for a few games over the course of a few seasons. During this last stint, though, was probably one of his more famous stunts that uh, certainly didn't end well. And I could do a whole episode just on this topic, and maybe I will. It was known as Disco Demolition Night. Keep in mind, this is the mid-1970s, and you had people that loved disco or absolutely hated disco. So Bill decided to capitalize on this and get the young crowd into the park to watch the game. So he sold all of the tickets for that game that night for 98 cents, and fans had to bring a disco record with them to the park. And the pull was, it was a doubleheader game. In between the two games, fans could stack all of their records into a pile on the field, and they would be blown up for them all to see the giant explosion of disco records. Well, during this doubleheader, during the first game, this young, uh, excited crowd got pretty drunk pretty quickly. And there were so many people that came to the park for this event that there was an overflow crowd. So marijuana was being passed around in the stands. Everybody was getting drunk. And eventually what happened was people started throwing their record discs onto the field during the game. A couple players got hit. Fans eventually began rushing onto the field during the game. And once that started happening, all chaos just ensued. It got so bad that they had to cancel the second game of the devil header and just shut the promotion down. Now, that obviously was really bad publicity for the Chicago White Sox. Bad, it was bad publicity for Vec, and it certainly didn't endear him any more to his fellow owners than he already was. But again, Bill's tactics worked. Under his leadership, attendance doubled again, and he was named MLB Executive of the Year by Sporting News during this time. He didn't let any of these things get him down, and he just kept chugging on. But unfortunately, due to health issues again, and a general hate from those other MLB owners and league officials, Bill had to retire. But his legacy was just too big to be ignored. His approach to marketing and selling tickets were just one of the ways that he changed baseball forever. Let's take a quick break for the seventh inning stretch. We'll be right back.
If you're enjoying the podcast, please, please take a moment and follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Rounders Podcast. Again, that's one word, Rounders Podcast. If you follow us, you'll get photos, quotes, and short event summaries from baseball's rich past, and they'll be in your feed on a regular basis. I also want to use this platform to hear from you about topics that you'd like to see covered. So keep in touch and follow me. You can also support me through my new podcasting platform, a service called Anchor. They have a secure payment option through Stripe, which is a trusted name in online payments. So you can support me safely and easily simply by going to anchor.fm forward slash rounders. If you have one or two dollars a month, hey, I'd appreciate your support. It does go a long way in helping me be able to upgrade equipment and pay the bills so I can have more time to focus on putting together more episodes. If you have the ability to send me five or more dollars a month, I'll give you some exclusive perks. Things like ad-free episodes, extra episodes, and some live regular Q&A sessions with me. What more could you ask for? Again, just go to anchor.fm forward slash rounders. A link is also available in the show notes. That's all for now. Let's get back to the show. Chapter 3. The Abe Lincoln of Baseball During his entire career, Bill Veck Jr. embraced the idea of integration, believing that players deserved a chance to play in the majors based on their skill and not on the color of their skin. In 1942, while he was running the AA Brewers, he put in a bid during that time to purchase the last place Philadelphia Phillies. His plan to turn that team around He wanted to put together an entire roster of players from the Negro Leagues and pay them the same wage as their white counterparts. Now, this was way ahead of its time, and segregation was still a firm bedrock in the MLB. And before that sale was finalized, other team owners in the National League, with the support of the MLB commissioner, made sure that another prospective buyer was given the Phillies. And this was even though Vex Group's offer was the highest. But he didn't let that stop him. In 1948, when he owned the Cleveland Indians, Vex signed Larry Doby, the American League's first black baseball player. He also hired baseball's first public relations officer, first trainer, and first scout. He signed Satchel Paige to his first major league contract. At the time, Paige was 42 years old, and Paige would not have gotten the publicity he deserved until someone finally gave him a chance to play in the majors, and that was Vec. In 1949, Vec invited 14 African-American baseball players to Cleveland's spring training team. Fast forward to 1972. MLB All-Star Kurt Flood, who was an African-American, decided to challenge the MLB's long-standing reserve clause, and he took the entire league to court. Up until this time, Players were beholden for life to the team that they signed to, even when they had satisfied the terms and conditions of those contracts. The reserve clause lasted all the way till 1972, and we hear about it today and we think, like, how could that even be a thing? But it was, and up until pretty recently. 
This whole thing was kicked off when Kurt Flood was traded to the Phillies by his then-team, the St. Louis Cardinals. Flood refused to report to Philadelphia, and he cited some legitimate reasons. He said that his new team was terrible, that they had a dilapidated stadium, and, most importantly, Philadelphia had a pretty strong history of racist fans during this time. Flood's argument was very well stated. He put in his court documents that, quote, After 12 years in the major leagues, I do not feel I am a piece of property to be bought and sold, irrespective of my wishes. I believe that any system which produces that result violates my basic rights as a citizen and is inconsistent with the laws of the United States and of the several states. End quote. At Flood's court case, no active MLB players spoke on his behalf. And why would they? They either disagreed with the sentiment or they were scared for their own contracts. But no one even attended the hearing. He had three people, just three people, that showed up to speak in support of his cause. Jackie Robinson, who had retired 15 years prior. Hank Greenberg, who was a Jewish MLB player who retired in 1947. And that third person was owner Bill Veck. Veck was the only owner to testify on Flood's behalf. See, he believed strongly in fairness for all players and stated on the stand that he compared MLB's uh, ball player condition to human bondage. He suggested that that reserve clause should be phased out and they could do it gradually to avoid any chaos. He stuck his neck out for Flood and he was hated even more by his fellow owners for doing so. Now, I might do a podcast episode on Flood later because it's such a fascinating topic. And Flood didn't end up winning this case, but he did change the, the, the scene. And it was because of his stand that we eventually saw player relations improve. We saw the development of a players association and free agency. And his steps definitely changed the game further down the road. But Vec was one of those individuals that stood up for him during a time where he needed him to. And just overall, this long-standing support of African Americans in the major leagues, it, it was something that Vec very strongly believed in, and he tried to lend them a voice whenever he could. And it was because of that that he earned the title The Abe Lincoln of Baseball from the Sporting News. Chapter 4. Baseball's Visionary Even after Bill left the executive's office, he never stopped being a fan. Even though he had to retire for health reasons, he ended up moving back to Chicago, and he became a regular in the bleachers at Wrigley Field. In 1984, he contracted lung cancer and died at the age of 71 on January 2, 1986. His cremated remains were interred at Oakwood Cemetery in Chicago. Bill's legacy is a long one. He helped revolutionize baseball in a lasting way. To this day, we still have Vecchian inventions with us, like the designated hitter, player names on the back of player jerseys, home run celebrations, promotional nights, clean and inviting ballparks for all genders and all ages. Bill even was the one that started the trend of singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game during the seventh inning stretch. He traded players fairly by advocating for free agency and negotiating rights. 
He even had an idea of starting a system of revenue sharing league-wide to promote level competition. That's something the MLB has now adopted. Overall, Vec pioneered the idea of having fun at the ballpark. His close friend and sometime business partner, the great slugger Hank Greenberg, told the New York Times, quote, Bill brought baseball into the 20th century. Before Bill, baseball was just win or lose, but he made it fun to be at the ballpark, end quote. In 1991, Vec was inducted into the Hall of Fame. His enemies were able to keep him out of the shrine until after he died, but there was no holding back placing someone like that into the shrines of baseball. Bill, thanks for all you did. You changed the game forever, and you made it something that we all could enjoy. So with that, I leave you with one of Bill's most famous quotes, and one that I always use to sign off on this show. There are only two seasons, winter and baseball. I'm also going to, at the end of this clip, play just a quick two-minute uh, interview from Bill Veck about what he thinks are the important things in life. I found it very inspirational, and I hope you will too. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Nothing is any better just because it costs more. And I think that's a mistake that we've made in our society is because is correlating cost with value and cost with return. And they have no correlation. And I guess you learn that because you see a ball player who gets a million dollars who can't play, you know? At $100,000, he would be stealing. And the fact is you pay him a million dollars doesn't make him that much better, and it doesn't mean that you've gotten that much greater return. And that's true of, well, how much money can you pay a tulip to bloom? You know? And how much more can you play a song to hum? <laughs> so I wonder, I wonder what relationship money has to, to being happy, to enjoying your world and your life. I think very little.